Amen. Well, just to tack on uh, to what Pastor Ted said earlier about the fasting, um, we are going to do some, what I'm call, we're going to do a Friday fasting time in the month of September. So there's five, I think, Fridays in September. It starts on September 1. And so um, you may fast. We, we're asking our church through this season, to, just in this month, to fast one meal that day. Um, you, of course, may fast more if you'd like. Um, but where, we, where we're getting this from is Acts 13. So let me just read a couple of these verses uh, at the beginning of Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on him, them and sent them off. So what we have in Acts 13 is not a requirement that any time elders are elected into the church that we should fast, but there's certainly biblical precedent for doing so. And it, it ensures that our dependence is entirely on the Holy Spirit and that we're asking the Holy Spirit to work in and through this decision. So we think it's appropriate that we not only pray, but that we also fast prior to the vote and to laying hands on men that we would seek to add to our pastoral team. So join us in that. Um, it'll be September 1st starting. Probably be, it'll probably be a similar pattern to the way that we did back earlier this year when we had those fasting times in the morning. We'll do a Facebook Live. We'll pray together around 6 or 6.30 in the morning, and I'll, I'll kick that off this Friday, and we'll have some devotional material, and we'll pray together for about 15 or 20 minutes. So, um, and then you can pray. I'll give you some things to pray throughout the day as well as we devote this um, decision over to the Lord and desire his will to be done. So that's a little bit of information about the Friday fasting. Also, two other matters for prayer that please keep in, keep in mind this week. Our brother Harold will be going in for a procedure tomorrow. Pray for him in that regard. And also pray for Titus Emery and for good news to come uh, to our brother and sister, Adam and Melissa, as they take him in this week as well. So... Well, we're on week number four in Colossians. If you're a guest here, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of taking us through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're in the fourth sermon this week, picking up at verse 24. We're just walking through it verse by verse, section by section. And this week, we're going to consider verses 24 of chapter 1 through the fifth verse of chapter 2. And the theme is Paul's ministry to his church, to the church here. Now, it, it might be interesting to step back just a moment and say, why is Paul talking about himself at this point in the letter? I mean, up to this point, he's been relatively self-effacing. He hasn't met this church. He hasn't been in this church. As he says in verse 1, he's not seen them face to face. And he says in verse 5, though he's absent from them in body, he's with them in spirit. So he loves this church. He's thankful for this church. But nevertheless, they don't know him. And he doesn't really know them all that well. The only information he's gotten is through his fellow laborer, Epaphras, who's reported back to him about the condition of the Colossian church. So he feels like he needs to tell them a little bit about himself and about the struggles and the labors and the calling of God that has been upon his life. Up to this point, he's merely been encouraging to the Colossians. He's prayed for them, and then he reminded them, as we saw last week, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. But you notice at the end of verse 23, he has these words. He says he desires that they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, 
and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And now he's going to talk a little bit about his ministry and what ministry he has been called to by the Lord. So that's where we make the connection. And him letting, now he's going to share something of his heart. Because you know, if you're going to make an impact on people, you can't just tell them what you're praying for them. You can't just tell them encouraging things that you see in them. And you can't just remind them of the gospel. You need to share something of who you are. Give your heart to them. Share something about what the Lord is doing in and through. And so that's what we see Paul doing here in these verses. So I've got three points. This is all about ministry this morning. And lest we think it's just limited to Paul, we're going to see that it also applies to us as well because all of us are called to full-time ministry. Some of us are called, like we've been thinking about this morning, like Thad and Keith, to pastoral ministry. But make no mistake, we are all called to ministry, not called necessarily to the ministry, as we were referring to this morning, but we're called to ministry in the body of Christ, and we are to do so as in an imitation of the Apostle Paul and the, the kinds of ethos and character and passions and desires and commitments that he himself has. So we can learn a lot from Paul's ministry about how we're to engage in ministry as well. So here's the three things I want us to talk about related to ministry this morning. Number one is the what of ministry. What is at the heart of ministry? When we talk about ministry, what's at the heart of it? So I got one thing there. Then I got point number two, the why of ministry. Why do we do it? Why do we engage in it? What's our goal? Two things there. And then three, the how of ministry. How do we go about doing ministry? And there'll be three things there. So one, two, three. Ministry is as easy as one, two, three. If only it were that easy, really. <laughs> but now we'll talk about one thing related to what, two things related to why, and three things related to how? Number one, what? The what of ministry. Notice verse 24 and 25, actually verse 25 here. Of which I became, we're going to be jumping around this text a little bit, of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So what is ministry at its core? Ministry at its core is a stewardship from God to make His Word known. That's what ministry is at its core. It's a stewardship. It's something that God has entrusted to us to do, to be faithful in. We didn't come up with the Word. God makes it known. He gives it to us, and He expects, it, expects us to pass it on to others. And so we'll see more about that as we get into the how. But suffice it to say for right now, the what of ministry is a stewardship of making God's Word known. That's what is at the core and the heart of ministry. That's not all that ministry is. Ministry includes lots of other things. But at the heart of it, unless the Word of God is being made known, it's not biblical ministry. It's not biblical ministry. There's lots of good things that we can do in addition to that to pave the way for the Word of God getting known. You can feed the hungry. You can shelter the homeless. You can minister to physical needs. You can pray for people. But unless there is at the core of that a making known of the Word of God to someone, 
It isn't biblical ministry, and it doesn't do them ultimate eternal good. I like the way John Piper put in describing ministry one time. He said, ministry exists to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Right? It's not to say that that other stuff isn't important, that the things we do for people aren't important. It's just that central to all of that is the opportunity to make God's word known. Now, why is that so important? Look at verse 4 of chapter 2, because this is Paul's concern for this church, and we're going to get into it the next two weeks as he really starts to go after some false teaching that has crept into the Colossian church. But notice chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, what's going on in this church is other teachers are coming in and sharing things that sound like the Word of God that sound like things that are consistent with the Bible, that sounds like they haven't really arrived yet in Jesus and don't have everything they need in Jesus. And so Paul says people are going to come along and they're going to have arguments and they're going to sound good. They're going to sound very plausible. They're going to sound very realistic and they're going to ring true. It's like, but you need to know the Word of God so well that you're able to discern that error refute that error, and believe the truth. So that's why it's so important to make the Word of God known, because there is so much counterfeit gospel, counterfeit teaching out there that we need to be able to have a good nose for. Now notice Paul uses the word mystery three times in this passage. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages. Verse 27, This mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And chapter 2, verse 2, the knowledge of God's mystery. Now, if you're familiar and you remember back to our sermon series through the book of Ephesians, we did that last year, I think. My dates are right, which they often are not, as we've talked about over the weeks here. But um, Paul uses this word mystery a lot in Ephesians as well. And when we use the word mystery, we usually think of something that's hidden, that we're trying to figure out, but we don't know what the answer to it is. It's mysterious. It's not clear. That's not how Paul's using the word mystery here. What he's talking about is something that once was hidden, that something that was less clear, but is now clear, is now totally clear. And the mystery is God's work in Jesus Christ and his plan to redeem the world has come. It's now crystal clear. How does God intend to save people? How does God intend to reconcile alienated, hostile, evil-doing people to himself? Through the blood of the cross. Now the mystery is revealed. Jesus on the cross is the way that God is going to reconcile the world. The way he's going to fix all the brokenness, clean up the mess. No more mystery. No more veil. No more hidden. Nothing hidden. Now it's clear. So that's why we must understand that the mystery has been revealed. Paul says that in verse 26. The mystery is Christ, verse 27, and two, chapter 2, verse 2. And we saw this last week, right? We talked about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So this mystery concerns who Jesus is, image of God, firstborn of all creation, reconciler of the world, and all those things we talked about related to Jesus last week, and that we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he's now reconciled us in his body through death. So, the mystery is God's plan for salvation 
through Jesus that includes Jew and Gentile, all people, all nations have an opportunity to come to Christ or to come to God through Christ. So this, this presses on us an obligation if we're going to do ministry well, right? If we're, we're going to and I'm, if we're going to be called into ministry, which I'm going to make an argument here uh, that we are, but if we're going to be called into ministry, how important is it that you know the Bible well? How important is it? Brothers and sisters, we have got to know Scripture. We will do people no good, as much good as we know the Bible. And we'll do a lot of harm to people if we don't know the Bible well. We'll sling out proof texts. We'll, we'll take verses out of context and just apply it to situations. We can do awful damage to people in the name of the Word of God. It's been done over the years. You know that? You can do great damage with the Word. And therefore, we have to know it well. So in what ways are you availing yourself to grow in the knowledge of Scripture? Are you reading? Listening to podcasts, getting good teaching, sitting in on Pastor Keith's school class, literally where they're marching through sections of Scripture so that you can know how to handle them in a gospel-centered way. There's lots of ways we can grow. Obviously, reading it is one way, but reading it with understanding, right? Reading it with depth of insight, growing in it. What's the last thing you learned that you didn't know from Scripture? Any new, a fresh understanding lately? So our, our, our engagement with Scripture needs to be dynamic and ever-growing. That's my point, is we need to be diving in, digging deeply into this book, and seeking to know the Bible better so that we can be equipped to minister to people well. So that's my first point and my first challenge. Know the Bible because ministry is essentially making the Word of God known as a stewardship. If it's a stewardship, brothers and sisters... Do you think God will call us to account for how faithful we were in exercising it? He has given us his, his word. He has given it to us in our language, in multiple translations. We have an amazing source of light that many cultures in the world still don't have, which is why the work of Wycliffe and other Bible translation is so, so important. But we have this word and we are called to steward it for the sake of others that they might be brought into the knowledge of God and understand His ways and His plan for salvation through Jesus. We don't just know four spiritual laws and pray them with, you know, share the Romans road with people or whatever, John 3.16. We have to know Scripture in a deep, abiding way. We don't all have to be world-class systematic theologians. We don't all have to be the smartest guy in the room, that creates other problems. But we need to be devoted ourselves, hungering and thirsting, like Jeremiah said, your word is like a fire in my bones, and pursuing it as a thirsty man for water and as a hungry man for food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the Bible more than we need breakfast. Every day of your life, you need the Bible more than you need breakfast. And so let's devote ourselves, let's hunger for it. Let's go after it and grow. Number two, the why of ministry. Two things here. What's the goal? So we've got the word of God. We've got a stewardship. We're called to take it to people. Why do we do that? Notice verse 28 of chapter one. 
Him we proclaim, Jesus, that's a plural we, by the way, so that includes us. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present, here's the goal, everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal, is to present people mature in Christ on that day. People who know Christ, that have Christ in them, that are ready to be presented to God the Father on that last day, that we might present people mature in Christ. So the way we present people mature in Christ is through the Word of Christ and sharing that Word with them so that they might understand Jesus and who He is and be brought up to maturity in Him. Notice how radically other-oriented ministry is. Maybe, maybe this doesn't need to be said, but I just want to bend this nail over. Ministry is radically other, other concern, uh, concerned about others. I remember one time on Facebook, I did a theology quiz myself and uh, did a little you know, theology quiz. And they, then you know, somehow I, I think I shared it to my Facebook page. It said, you got a 100% on this theology exam. And another brother, who doesn't go to our church, came along and wrote on my Facebook feed, Mark, I'm glad you passed that. How would people in your church pass it? You know? And I thought, man, that's a good word. That's a good word. Because he was thinking, first of all, it was rebuking to me as a pastor. <laughs> but then secondly, it was amazingly rebuking to me just to think about, yeah, it doesn't matter ultimately. It doesn't like end with me. Life doesn't stop with me. It matters how are others being grown up? How would other people, quote unquote, score on that? And that's what we see here with Paul. He's not so much concerned, so, so concerned about how well he would do, but how well the Colossians are doing in terms of their growth in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So notice how others focused he is. Verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for your sake, and I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. See how other-oriented he is? Also, look at verse 25. We see it again. Stewardship given to, given to me for you, for you. Notice again, verse 28. Warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Then we see chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all who've not seen my, me face to face. And then chapter 2, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you. Verse 5, for though I am absent the body, yet I am with you in spirit. See how other-oriented he is? He's just so concerned about how well other people are doing spiritually, even those among whom he's not met. Does that describe you? that describe me? How concerned are you about how other people in our, in our church, in your sphere, in your family, in your work, in your community, how, how concerned are you about how well they're doing in Christ? That's where ministry starts, with a concern for others and a concern for their growth. So let's talk about what this maturity looks like. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 give us the answer, and it can be summarized by what Paul says at the end of verse 5. The firmness of your faith in Christ. Okay, so maturity is ultimately a firm faith 
in Christ. Firmly rooted in Him. Not departing from Him. Holding on to Him. Clinging to Him. Resting in Him and Him alone for salvation. Trusting Him through all of life's difficulties. Rejoicing before Him in all of life's blessings. Rooted in Christ. A firmness in Christ. But let's see how the, what that looks like. So what does maturity and firmness in Christ look like? What does maturity in Christ and firmness of faith in Christ look like? Two things. And this is why, this is why we minister. This is what we're after. Number one, an authentic spirituality. An authentic spirituality. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's an authentic spirituality. It's an authentic encounter with Christ. He says that their hearts may be encouraged. So this is truth that impacts the heart and encourages the heart. And a mind that is fully assured of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So notice this. He says, Christ is the mystery. There's knowledge, and there's, then that knowledge should bring understanding, and that understanding should lead to full assurance, and that full assurance should lead to encouragement. You got that path? You can kind of walk verse 2 backward, and you can see what he's saying here. So the idea, what is an authentic spirituality? What is a real spirituality? What is maturity in Christ? What does firmness of faith in Christ really look like? Well, it starts with a knowledge of Christ, but that knowledge of Christ leads to a deep understanding of Him, an experiential understanding that leads to a full assurance. Ain't no way you're getting me away from Jesus. I'm assured, fully assured that He is the way. And there's a richness to that assurance an encouragement of heart, and an encouragement of soul. So that's what authentic spirituality, that's what we're after, brothers and sisters. We're after people knowing Jesus and that leading to strength and encouragement in their lives. We want them to be strengthened by the knowledge of God. We want them to come to know Him, understand Him, rest in Him, be encouraged by Him, and live for Him. That's firmness of faith in Christ. That's an authentic spirituality. But a second thing that maturity is, is a loving community. A loving community. Notice what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Then verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's not just thinking about individually them being encouraged and them understanding Jesus and growing in the knowledge of Him. He's thinking about what that should produce. And what it produces is a loving community that's ordered well. That's not marked by division or schism, but, has, but is good order and harmony and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So that's what He is after. That's what we are after in ministry we want an authentic spirituality, and we want a loving community. We want a knowledge of Jesus that leads to an understanding of Him and full assurance in Him that overflows in encouragement that issues in love for others. 
and seeks to be knit together in love with them. That's a tall order. That's a life's work right there. That's a life's work. As our brother Thad reminded us, it's a, that's a mess to get to that, isn't it, brother? It's a mess. It's a total mess to get to that. But doesn't it encourage us that one day it's going to be there? It's going to totally be there. And that's what Paul reminds himself of at the beginning of this letter. He sees the gospel bearing fruit and growing in these people. He sees this young church understanding. He starts to pray for them. He encourages them with Jesus. And this is ultimately what he's doing in this letter, is trying to do what he's telling them to do here. So that's what we're after. That's what a mature, perfect in Christ, perfect, perfect meaning mature, not absolutely sinlessly perfect, but mature in Christ person looks like one who is firmly rooted in Christ. There's an authentic spirituality that's issuing in a loving community. Number three, and finally, the how of ministry. So we've seen the what, stewardship, make the word of God known for the purpose of authentically Christ-centered people who are loving each other. Here's how. Here's how we get there. Number one, faithful proclamation faithful sharing of Jesus. Notice chapter 1, verse 28 again. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. So we tell people about Jesus. I'm not going to go back to point number one because we already hashed that over again. The Word of God centered on the Son of God is central to faithful biblical ministry. But we must not forget, brothers and sisters, that ministry is something we are all called to do. It's not just the professionals. Why do I say that? How can I say that? Well, there's the plural we in verse 28, which I don't think is just limited to Paul and his co-workers. I think it's including everyone he's writing to as well. But if that weren't enough, think with me about this quickly. The very words that Paul uses here to describe his apostolic ministry, which is unique, definitely, as an apostle, but the very words that he uses to describe his apostolic ministry on behalf of all men are the same words that he uses to describe our responsibility in ministry on behalf of others in the body of Christ. The words teaching, see that word teaching everyone with all wisdom? Warning, that word, and all wisdom are used together one other place in this letter. Look at Colossians 3 verse 10. Colossians 3 verse 10. Sorry, verse 16. Gave you the wrong verse. Verse 16. These are instructions to the church. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that not what we were talking about earlier? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not a superficial knowledge, a deep, long, abiding knowledge. Teaching and admonishing. Same two words as in 128. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Same, same phrase as in verse 28. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So would Paul have in his mind that it's only his apostolic responsibility to warn, teach, in all wisdom? Or would he say that's a responsibility of all of us in the body of Christ? 
It's the responsibility of all of us in the body of Christ, which is why I say we're all called to full-time ministry. God just reroutes our paychecks differently. So the words translated teaching and admonishing and all wisdom in 3.16 are the same terms found in 128. Paul intends ministry, a ministry-based mindset to occupy the whole church, not just the professional clergy. This is the same thing he reminds the Ephesians of in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. Remember those verses? He gave pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets and evangelists to equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. There it is in Ephesians 4. So the question then becomes is, are we striving, brothers and sisters, and I ask this of you this morning, with sincerity, desiring that you would answer it in your own heart before the Lord. Are we, are you, am I, striving for maturity in Christ myself and for the maturity of other Christians in this room? Because, really, we can't have one without the other. You can't be mature in Christ and not concerned for the maturity of others in Christ. That's what it means to be mature in Christ. Here's what Jonathan Lehman wrote in a recent article. He was, he's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and a former Sunday school teacher of mine when I lived in Louisville. Good brother. Jonathan Lehman writes the following. He says, You disciple everyone around you. Whether you mean to or not, inevitably and invariably, your actions and words affect people in your world. You assist them in moving toward righteousness or wickedness. The question for you every morning is, What impact will you make today? because you will make an impact. A Christian answers that question by saying, today, I want to help others follow Jesus. Helping others follow Jesus should be the goal of our former formal discipleship relationships, yet it should also be the goal of every waking minute when you say good morning to your spouse, drive the kids to school, interact with colleagues, write that memo, or balance that budget. All our life and work should be done unto Christ so that people see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. We are discipling people every single moment. We are revealing to them if Jesus is valuable or not. We are revealing them if he's worth talking about, if he's worth bringing up, if he's worth following and obeying. So here, Lehman gives five tips on discipling. He says, discipling begins with love. People got to know that you love them. Number two, it works through instruction and imitation. So it's not just speaking, but it's living what we're speaking. Number three, it affirms differences. We don't expect everybody to do ministry in the exact same way, but they have the exact same goal in all of their ministry. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to stand behind a pulpit and preach a sermon, but it does mean that we have to wrestle with, how is God, where has God placed me? Here. How can I work here? How can I advance the cause of the gospel here? How can I encourage people's hearts? push them toward Jesus? How can I foster loving community? So it affirms those differences. It's church-wide, Lehman says. None of us has everything other believers need. Every member of a local church adds their little bit. And then finally, he says, a goal of discipling is to equip for discipling. He says, want to help other people follow Jesus? Help them to help others follow Jesus. And I wrote at the bottom, intrinsic to following Jesus 
is helping other people follow Jesus. We can't follow Jesus unless we're helping other people follow him because that's what it means to follow him. You got it? You can't say you're following Jesus and not concerned about helping other people follow Jesus. It starts with our husband and wife. It branches out to our kids if we have them in our home or if they're outside of our home. It starts with our other spheres of influence. We, we, we have this mindset where we wake up and like Lehman says, we're going to have an impact today. One way or the other, for good or ill, but we will make an impact. And so we need to let our prayer be as we get up. And let this be our prayer this week as we get out of bed today. Lord Jesus, help me help others follow Jesus. Whether it's in my home with my kids or among church family over a meal or in passing on a phone conversation, help me to disciple everybody I meet toward you. It's a great prayer to pray because it's intrinsic to following Jesus is helping other people follow Jesus. That's why Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men because we follow him and that's what he produces. He makes us concerned about other people following him. All right, two more quickly. There's the first how. We speak about Jesus to others. Second, dependent labor. Faithful proclamation, dependent labor. This is the thing I love about my Lord, and I hope you do too. And it's what we've already been reminded of so far in Colossians. This is not dependent on our strength. This is dependent on the strength of God. Verse 29, For this I toil, that is to present everyone mature in Christ, struggling, agonizing, working hard, laboring, but with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Remember what we saw in Paul's prayer in Colossians 1 when he prayed, May you be strengthened, verse 11, with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. This is the kind of strength that we have at work within us as we seek to help other people follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, ministry is hard. Ministry is laborious. It's tiresome. This is what Paul says. He says he struggles struggling. And then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And this word struggle is not just like, yeah, I struggled a little bit getting out of bed yesterday because I was a little tired. No, this is talking about laboring to the point of exhaustion, agonizing, working hard. But the good news is that God's strength is available to us. It's available to us. We serve God according to 1 Peter 4.11 in the strength that God supplies so that in all things God will get the glory. So that when a person's life is affected by our ministry, the credit doesn't go to us. The credit goes to God who worked within us and enabled us to do that. To love that person. To share with that person. To befriend that person. To care in that situation. Why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I struggled, I worked harder than anyone. Nevertheless, it was not me, but it was the grace of God that was with me. That's where our strength comes from. And brothers and sisters, this produces joy. This is not drudgery. This is not, oh, okay, I'll do it, Jesus. I know you died for me, and I'm supposed to tell you about, or tell other people about you, seek to minister to their needs. But but it's really, that's really joyless. No, notice, how does Paul bracket this? 
Chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice. I rejoice. And then at the very end, chapter 2, verse 5, rejoicing to see your good order. This brings him joy. This tireless, laborious, difficult work produces joy because it's the work of God in us. And never are we more aware of God's power and God's work in our lives than when we are giving it away to other people. So let's do that. And then finally, thirdly and finally, joyful suffering. It's going to require joyful suffering. Now, I don't have time to mine out this very difficult text in chapter, tw- chapter 1, verse 24, but I will uh, point us in the right direction. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, if you read that verse, you step back and you say, Wait a minute, Paul, are you saying there was something lacking about Jesus' suffering? That it wasn't? I thought he said it's finished. You're saying here that you're filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. But you already told us that his work's done. Look at verse 22, right? Two verses before. He's now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. I thought it's done. That's not what Paul means. Paul does not mean that his suffering is adding to the worth of Jesus' sufferings. That somehow he's contributing to the atonement. That sometimes he's helping pay for people's sins. No. What he's saying is he's suffering in solidarity with Jesus. Do you know what? If Jesus were still on this earth, he would still be suffering. He would still be receiving the suffering that is contributed by people. They'd still be saying things about him. They'd still be persecuting him. They'd still be hating him. They'd still be receiving him and worshiping him. But he would be a polarizing figure. And so the sufferings that we engage in for Jesus are actually afflictions that we're body bears, that we bear in solidarity with him. Remember when Jesus came to Paul on the road to Damascus and said, why are you persecuting me? Because he's persecuting his people. And we sang it this morning in Knowing You, Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what this is all about. But I think there's another thing going on here. And that is, while what is lacking is not the worth of Christ's sufferings in themselves, but the knowledge of their value through the presentation in the suffering of his people is lacking. When people encounter a suffering Christian who is suffering for Jesus, they grow in their esteem for Jesus. Because they say, if someone's willing to go through that, he must be pretty important. He must be pretty impressive if someone is willing to put themselves through that to love another person. And I'll close with this illustration. It's a pretty famous one from, um, and worship team, you can come on up as, as we close here. But this is a great illustration of that. It's, a, it's an illustration from J. Oswald Sanders, who was an old missionary and missions leader and wrote the book, uh, Spiritual Leadership, which is a, just an absolute classic and he gave this illustration about, I think, that perfectly sums up what Colossians 1.24 is all about. There was this missionary that would go into these villages, and he would seek to preach Jesus. I don't remember all the details of the story, but I remember the gist of it. And he would go into these villages, and he would start preaching Jesus. 
And at first, they just started yelling at him and cursing at him. Get out, get out, get out. We don't want you here. But he kept going back, and he kept going back. And eventually, they started beating him. And they started sending him out of the village after hitting him with rods and rocks and things. But he kept going back, and he kept going back, and he kept sharing Jesus because he was convinced of all this stuff that we've been talking about this morning. And eventually he went in one last time and he was so beaten and so bruised and so hurt that he, he left the village and went out and laid under a tree and passed out. And thinking he was dead, the villagers went out and they stood around him and they, they, were, they, were, getting, they were just standing all around and eventually the man came too and he looked up and he thought, this is it, this is it, they're going to kill me. And the villager said, we, we thought you were dead, and we came out to kill you, but we noticed you have blistered feet. And he had these feet that were just full of blisters, in addition to his other wounds. And he said, and we want to know, who is this one that you would go through blistering of feet and persecution and beating for? Tell us about this one. And according to Oswald Sanders, the man preached the gospel and the whole village believed. That is filling up what is lacking in regards to Christ's sufferings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that's so critical to the reason you created the world and are intending to redeem it, which is ministry. The ministry of your people on behalf of Jesus, your, the body of Christ, living under the headship of Christ, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel of Christ, for the glory of Christ. Father, show us, teach us, how would you have us to help others follow you? How would you have us make the word of God known? How would you have us cultivate authentic spirituality and work toward knitting others' hearts together in love? And how would you help us, have us to, to proclaim your word and depend upon you and labor and experience the joy that comes from suffering and laboring alongside of you. Work in our hearts. Fill us with joy at the, at the calling that we've received to, to live for so worthy of a king who suffered so great a suffering for us and has called us to walk in his steps. For the joy that was set before him and the joy that is set before us, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll give as well.